Hello and welcome to the Squiggly Lives podcast. The show that explores life purpose by taking you on a journey into different people's unique and somewhat squiggly worlds. We're your hosts, Helena and Claire. In this episode, we talk to Danny Brockman about navigating the challenges of life and finding balance along the way. We hear about his current charity project that raises money to feed the homeless. It is an art and music-led charity called The Grateful Collective, who in their words are on a mission to expose and foster the growth of basic kindness, love and compassion in our communities and abroad. We then go on to discuss the opioid epidemic in the US, the ups and downs of life, as well as addiction in great detail. From this we talk about how Danny got through some very tough times and where he found the motivation to get through them and out to the other side. We cover a lot of really intense topics that we feel need to be talked about. Danny provides a shining and positive example of how he was not defeated by his dark times. And we see how he has followed his passions to create a life that he loves today. Through his stories, he shows us where he now finds purpose in life. A clear message that stands out is that very often we just need to keep going, to persevere, to find our own purpose. We hope you enjoy listening. Welcome, Danny. Thanks for coming on. Thank you for um, having me. <laughs> great, great that you could be here. So we'll start off by just talking about your current um, work at the moment. And uh, I know that you're involved in a, a great charity project at the moment. So we thought about starting with that and uh, what your work consists of with it at the moment. Great. Yeah. Um, right now, um, working strictly with the Grateful Collective, which started out as a group on Facebook and has now become a 501c3 charity. And I have, have been um, voted in as the CFO, Chief Financial Officer. <laughs> so um, in charge of Treasury and this and that um, when it comes to that. But um we, our main mission is feeding the homeless. So we have, what we're trying to do is get chapter presidents in each state um, of the United States to uh, oversee their state and organize volunteers and put on what we call um, uh, sack lunch giveaways. We have a certain criteria that we follow for each sack lunch giveaway and um we're growing daily we think we have about a little over three thousand members now i think we've been a group for about four months and um we have 16 chapter presidents right now in 16 different states we have eight admins which we've um, we're kind of finding it to be a growing pain to like see who is really dedicated and who has the time, you know, to uh, be a part and put forth the kind of energy and commitment that we're looking for in people. So um, there have been a few people that have dropped off of the admin group team and then um, a few new ones too, who have brought new life to the group. So yeah, um, that's basically what we do. 
sounds like such a fantastic and yeah incredibly inspiring charity um do you, so you said it started off as a Facebook group do you want to talk a little bit about how it came about totally yeah um really it started out uh well it was started by uh a couple and they were friends of mine just through the internet you know Facebook through like these concert poster groups so um they got a little jaded with how some of the groups were just all about profit and not really giving back or at least nobody was showing that they were giving back to anybody or any, anything so they started the group to where we could um do what they call raffle we call it waffling on facebook but it's really raffling if you call it raffle then uh facebook will like take it off but if you call it waffle they won't <laughs> so it's a way around that but what we do is we so right right now we're doing a thing called the artist of the week so we showcase some certain uh certain artists work and we will buy a piece of their work with our money and then we will waffle it off on our group page and usually people like to be very generous when it comes to charity and it'll waffle off for usually much more than what we paid for it so those funds go directly to our uh, charity account and that's how we raised funds at the beginning then um i started doing a uh an event at um in my town of willits california with the another collective called the leopold collective and they do events with like edm music and like a lot of local artists display their art and people come and you know have a good time and buy art um my friend who started that collective approached me and uh said that since we were a nonprofit, that we could run a bar there. My buddy Trenton, who started the Leopold Collective, approached me about doing the bar at the events. And he said, since we were a nonprofit, that we were allowed to run a bar, an alcohol bar, without a liquor license. And that all we had to do was pay for the space or rent the space. So we worked out a deal where uh, the Grateful Collective would purchase the alcohol for the night, and then we would split the profits of the night, uh, 75 to the Grateful, 75% to the Grateful Collective, and then 25% to the Leopold Collective. And the first few we did, we did pretty well. The last one we did, it was um, a little smaller, it was real rainy, and it was right during harvest. So a lot of our the people who come to our that those events are um trimigrants we call them but there's just people from other countries that come to the mendocino area to trim weed and work on pot farms you know <laughs> um, so at that time it was really rainy that night and it was the middle of harvest so it was kind of our slowest one yet so that was our last one so there's been three but each one is produced profit and um that goes directly to the Grateful Collective. Oh, amazing. It must be such an interesting experience to be involved and to be such a figurehead in a charity just 
from the very beginning of it, from its very roots, and to see it grow. Yeah, you know, um, I was just a member of the group at first, and then Tyler and Amanda called me up one morning, and I hadn't even really ever talked to them, and they were like, hey, we'd like to know if you want to be an admin. We just like how positive you are on our page and how much, you know, acti how active you are on our page, this and that. No, I was kind of taken back. I was like, oh, well, sure, yeah. But I had really no idea what I was getting into. So they were like, relax, you know, you don't have to worry about it. It's not a big deal, this and that. You just basically, if there's an issue that comes up, we talk about it and it's just kind of a, uh formality type thing but we would like you to have be a part of it and i was like sure it's become a lot more now <laughs> um we they are uh very um well versed in grant writing and um charity organizing organizing and um all the ins and outs of how that works they're they're pretty, pretty smart couple, pretty powerful couple. They're a power couple, I would say. <laughs> and um, they just saw something in me and we just keep bouncing stuff off of each other. And it's become kind of, you know, we're the three main, you know, main people in the group, in the admin team. But we have a few other people who are pretty, you know, um, active and uh, committed. So lately we've been doing, um, we've been getting merchandise for the group. They started, uh, or Tyler started making, got these um, cannabis jars made with these special lids with this laser engraving of our logo on top which is a Grateful Dead, steal your face with the Grateful Collective written in the head. And uh, it's a pretty popular design. And uh, they did really, really well. He uh, dropped them last week and he's nearly sold them all and made about $1,000 profit up off of a $100 investment. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> And I'm currently working on t-shirts and stickers with the same logos. And then we have other people working on um, other products such as uh, cannabis pipes, smoking pipes. Um, I think we have a poster um, idea out there when we're trying to get some uh, well-known artists on our, on our team to you know um like uh donate in a sense their art to us to use to sell for the charity but then they can also get a tax write-off so it helps them with that and then they help us with our part but um yeah really the main mission though is and i always try to stay grounded in that is that we're trying to feed the homeless here you know and so keeping that up i think is what's really going to keep the group um growing and um you know they tyler and amanda have very big ideas of how far we can get um 
but I like to keep grounded in that, you know, we are where we are now. And let's not forget what our mission is, you know. It says a lot about, um, for you personally, to, um, or, and for other people, I suppose, that you've, to follow your interests, like you say, you were just um, part of this Facebook group out of interest and curiosity, I imagine, and to just follow that first and then something grows out of it do you know what I mean I think so often people are very preoccupied with um finding a career that they want to do or finding something to make money out of or finding something that's um you know kind of very career orientated or so but then they forget or we can all forget about just doing something out of passion and interest and then you never know what's going to come from it and that's yeah. amazing that you've done that I totally agree I think that when you uh, I mean it seems as if though as when we let go of that um you know search and desire like super desire for um something that we it will just maybe fall into your lap at the right time I believe in that you know um believe in that with love I believe in that with work, you know, believe in that in this situation that you're saying for sure. How do you think you do that more often? Um, because, I mean, I'm personally very, um, uh, I do it a lot, basically trying to search and trying to force things into happening or trying to, you know, I'm quite impatient um, and I'm probably the worst person for it. And then I'm constantly reminding myself just to sort of let go surrender you know follow your like heart and your intuition and doing things for love and um just the joy the sheer joy of doing them and then everything will work itself out but I'm I'm really the yeah. worst person for not doing that and doing the very opposite and like how do you do it more yeah it sounds like we're complete opposites because <laughs> <clears throat> I just feel like my whole life I've just kind of been like in the moment and you know whatever happens happens and go with the flow you know um maybe it's not the it hasn't worked out the best for me at times in my life <laughs> but um I think living in the moment is all we have you know um, the moment is all we have, but it's good to have a view of the future, you know. Um, I really like those stickers that we got at the Gorge that said, I love now. I put one on the back of my car. Yeah, I've still got them. Um, just for people listening, me and Danny went to um, a music festival concert, a three-day run of fish at the Gorge, um, and we got some amazing stickers there as well. And yeah, I love now is just... Um, a great slogan for for how to live of course <laughs> yeah need to find a place for mine to go should we talk a little bit about the legalization of cannabis in california where you're where you are right now yeah yeah in 1996 they legalized it medicinally mostly just for cancer patients aid patients and a list of other ailments and illnesses but really people started to be able to kind of take advantage of that and say that they you know you could find the right doctor and say hey you know I've got this and that 
um, and get get the card pretty easily, you know. So a lot of people ended up with them, and that stayed like that until like 2016, I believe, is when they legalized cannabis uh, recreationally for the state of California. Um, but really, all along, there was just never really a fear living here, like having cannabis on you. And that's one of the reasons I moved out here from Georgia was because growing up there is like, if you had just like a roach in your ashtray, you could get arrested and get six months probation. And then you're going to be taking drug tests and then they could just keep you in the system and all these fines and all for a plant, you know, which I thought was ridiculous. So I always wanted to move back to California, you know, for that freedom um but yeah now uh yeah now it's just wide open you know it's it's legal in so many other states and the state is um going through some you know it's a fluctuating volatile market the legalization of cannabis and it's not really going to stabilize in my opinion until the whole nation goes legal because we have all these states where it's illegal, so it's keeping the black market thriving, right? And so the legal farms aren't able to keep up with the production of all these illegal farms either. So their value goes down as well. So it's just, I don't claim to know everything about it, but I see what I see and it, it's, it's a pretty volatile market at times. You know, gotta, it's the type of thing where you gotta know people to really kind of thrive, you know, or you, you gotta have a lot of money already. They set it up in California um, when it was, before it went recreationally legal, they set it up to where, um, or they tried to set it up to where small farms could gain traction for four years or no, a few years, I think, before the bigger corporations and the people with the big money came in and just knocked them out, you know? They tried to set it up to where small, what they called mom and pop grows, could like, you know, have a good foothold and possibly make it through. Some did, some don't. Some do, some don't. So there are big corporations owning the farms basically is that how it how it works and they're yeah. making money from it yes yeah yeah that's where we've gotten to now it's just started um i think last year they opened it up and throughout the state if you look at the state of california i mean there are some counties where there's just giant marijuana grows you know per, high high production um it's pretty crazy to look at like that but then you look at the wine you know the vineyards and they're all over too so it's like pretty much becoming the same kind of thing and which is the way it should be and so people now it's readily available and you have coffee shops and you can stores dedicated to it yeah they have what they call dispensaries I wouldn't call them coffee shops. There may be some places like that around 
it's not like an Amsterdam thing. Yeah, I think I'm thinking of that where I, I lived for a little while, so I'm used to that style. <laughs> right, yeah. Um, there may be some of that in like Southern California, I think I've heard, but um, I think there's actually some laws against being able to smoke in a dispensary. Some dispensaries, I think you can for whatever reason. Like I said, the county laws are um, often very, um, there's just different, like county by county, the laws are different. So the ordinance are different, the laws are different. Okay, and then the surrounding states, it's legal or it's not? Can you carry it over the border? Or how does it... it you diff, are it not allowed to state. do interstate transport. No, you cannot do... You, you cannot um, uh, travel interstate with wow. cannabis at this time. But you can fly <laughs> in your state. Oh, okay. To another city. <laughs> in, in your state to another city in your state right okay you know yeah i mean you're free to do whatever you want but (laughs) i don't recommend flying out of your state with it sure okay no (laughs) slightly scary um so then how do you think uh california i mean have you seen it going from illegal to legal and how how do you think it's benefited people yeah, I'm not really going to touch on it too much, but um, yeah, I just find it really hard for the smaller mom and pop shops to keep up with this um, market as it is now. Um, it's kind of sad to see, but also people have seen it coming for a long time now, and it's just becoming really like m- much harder for um a smaller farm to keep up and with the cost of living the cost of um housing you know land all these different higher costs that everyone knows california has um it's just becoming pretty hard i've seen i moved out here in 2005 to a thriving community of kids people my age um, doing what I wanted to do, which was to come out to California and be free and grow marijuana, grow cannabis, you know, legally in a sense. Yeah, it's pretty much free of like the fear that we had growing up where I grew up, you know, or I think that was a common theme throughout the nation, you know, kids moving to California for the same reasons, you know, to be able to be free and, and grow cannabis. Whereas in their states they came from, they were not allowed to do that. It was actually very, very dangerous to do that. Mm-hmm. So it was this kind of cool thing to be a part of when we first moved out here. Um, but slowly with um, with the, I think, the housing prices and just um, the fluctuation of the market, cannabis market, all the markets really, but um, cannabis market uh, going from, geez, when I moved out here, you could sell a pound for $4,000, you know, of indoor quality cannabis. And now the days it's half that, you know, um, 
so a lot of people have just moved out you know it's like the great exodus almost of like all the good people are moving out of california you know because it's just too hard to make a living here anymore and um yeah i think having children and uh them being separated from their mother and divorced now is kind of the only thing that's kept me from staying here <laughs> but at the time that that happened mm -hmm. you know? but uh i have many uh many good reasons to be here now yeah mm -hmm. i love being in california so for me personally i didn't grow up smoking um cannabis and I know there's such a strong movement um, worldwide to get it legalized in a lot of places. Um, but then what do people, I mean, there's various reasons I know for like, pain, um, for relaxation, stress, anxiety. Um, and then I guess just kind of, you know, mental and physical relaxation. There's a lot of benefits to smoking it in the first place. But then I guess there's lots of backlash against legalizing it because people don't see the benefit in smoking right. it or I, they don't I see think, it as a medicinal plant yeah i think that the main um benefit of legalization of cannabis is that people will be out of prisons you know i think that the um the crime of cannabis is you know unfortunately um been a major stain on our our country you know, throughout the country, there's people in prison for uh, cannabis that are doing more time than people who have raped or even murdered people, you know. So I think that's the main benefit of the legalization. What is it? So, I mean, it's really shocking to hear that, um, you know, someone with marijuana could, could end up with a much worse sentence than, say, somebody that's murdered someone or raped somebody. Yeah. What do you think these are the states where it's illegal or other parts of the world where it's legal? What what is it do you think that they're scared of? What what is it that is what is what, behind who, it? The... I think it, in America it's the prison industrial complex, which is the privatization of prisons. I think there's a serious um, problem within our whole system um starting from local police all the way to prison you know that includes um you know lawyers prosecutors judges you know for a long long time these people have been making deals and deals and deals uh and it's dealing with people's lives and um a lot of the time they get it wrong really 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 wrong they're just starting to see that um, that we're starting to see that there's been a, there's some change happening more towards minorities. You know, minorities do more time uh, on a percentage wise than a white American would do in prison for certain crimes. That's horrible, you know. Um, and I think that you see that in the cannabis crimes as well, like. Um, this dis disproportionately affects minorities. Why is it that you stopped smoking um, when you saw yourself as never giving up? What made you stop? 
Well, I actually started having panic attacks from it. Um, I was a heavy opiate user, um, unfortunately, at one one point in time, and um, I started having panic attacks when I would smoke it. I felt like I was dying, and I ended up in the hospital the first time, thinking I was having a heart attack, and. You know, now looking back and even before now, I, I realized a while ago what it was is that I had changed my brain chemistry or something, you know, and these chemicals were, you know, as I started to use opiates, um, I slowly s started to use cannabis less, you know, mm -hmm. um, and that's a common theme with opiate addicts. And then it just becomes to where you don't smoke at all. And then, you know, one day I come home and I've been doing morphine all day and I'm all dehydrated. And my friend offers me a bite of a edible ganja cookie, you know, and I think that's going to help me feel better. <clears throat> and um, it didn't. It put me right into a severe panic attack that lasted a few hours. And my heart rate was at like 160 a minute 160 beats per minute uh for a few hours and um then i was like oh no it's it can't be the marijuana you know it can't be the marijuana and, uh tried it again another time and went right into it again mm -hmm. then it happened a few other times on accident after that because i started smoking cbd which cbd is um this cannabis that really has very very little psychoactivity so it's um different cannabinoids that um are still beneficial and for your you know brain and different part different things about your body system but um just accidentally hitting a joint that i thought was my cbd joint and then boom right into a panic deck so this was all when i was using opiates when I stopped using opiates, I started to, I, I tried again, you know, with the CBD and then I actually felt good enough maybe where I could try, you know, THC again. And I did that and a little by little. And I, I, I realized that, yes, I can smoke now. And I am smoking again now, currently very little, but I'm able to enjoy a, a, a stone, you know, a session. Whereas in, for a long time there i wasn't able to even when i wasn't using opiates i was scared to because of the trauma that i went through with those panic attacks you know it was like a a trigger that kept me from wanting to smoke which also i really didn't think that like i there were times when i was smoking a lot and i have children i have a eight-year-old son and a 10-year-old daughter and there'd be times when I'd be smoking with them and just thinking like, oh, like I'm not really being a great father. I'm not being attentive enough or, and, and, and not that it was the marijuana that was at fault, but that it was my, me who was at fault. You know, it was the marijuana kind of telling me what, what was going on. It wasn't that I was smoking was the problem, but that I wasn't maybe doing as well as I wanted to be doing as a father which um kind of slowed me down from smoking in itself but also you know finding a balance here where 
you know, at times it's good. And, you know, overindulgence is not a good thing with anything, you know. I don't think we should be abusing any substances too much. <laughs> I was interested about the opiates because um, I, I know that it, it, there's quite a big problem in parts of America with them. And I just wondered how, like if you were originally prescribed them, like how did you start using them and 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 how did you because they're I know that they're highly addictive how did you come come off them right yeah um so first I mean I was prescribed Ritalin when I was 11 years old for being ADHD or ADD what they call it you know attention deficit disorder um my mom really you know that was like 1991 my mom didn't really know what to do with me. I was kind of a wild child. I don't blame her, but they started, you know, giving me pills at that young of an age. So I think, you know, subconsciously or however, um, I was more uh, prone than to be okay with um, pharmaceutical drugs or not okay, but more, you know, feeling like it's okay to do it. So it started out as like doing Valium or Xanax. And then I was living in Georgia doing that. And I was always anti-opiate. Like, you know, I'll never do that. That drug, I don't want to die. You know, I've seen people die from this. I know friends who have died. Like, I don't want to die. I'm not going to do that. But when I moved to California, I found myself in a, you know, in a place where I wasn't able to find certain things that I like to do, you know, the substances that I like to do. So opiates were more frequent, more frequently available in my circle of people. So I gave them a try and that's basically started out very slowly. But once you, once you do it, an opiate for every day, for a couple of weeks you kind of you're hooked then you're you're physically addicted so if you tried to stop you would feel ill you know and um yeah that's how it started for me you said when you got to california you can find certain things that you do like to do and what what were they usually and is there was there a few more things that are more frequent in georgia and that area that you can more often i think in particular i was just speaking on pharmaceuticals sure. and so i was more of like um you know a xanax and valium type of guy okay, <laughs> when i got, got to it. california and then when i couldn't find those then it was like okay well you know this is what's available so all right i'll try that and the you know, I remember the first time I tried it, it made me throw up and I felt like crap, but I had to do it again because I have to do something as an addict. Okay. okay. <laughs> and so even going through really like a hard time, the first time I like took a, a hefty dose, you know, um, it was like throwing up and, you know, ill stomach all day, but like, also kind of a you know a buzz that you're like I can see why people like this and you know 
and then you've got your friends who are experienced telling you oh it gets it'll be okay it'll get better you know it won't always be like this your body will get used to it (laughs) so then if you have because they are prescribed i guess sometimes for certain conditions and things and then if you had the actual condition that they're prescribed for do you get that same throwing up feeling and you know get the same effects of them um i think that if you usually stick to a doctor's prescribe prescription then um you're not going to be feeling those feelings okay got it so it's just the the amount of them because yeah yeah, when, when you have pain that's severe and you're given a heavy uh opiate um the 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 feeling i don't know something i don't you know what i'm not even going to try and touch on that because i have no idea how that works (laughs) but i know that you know you know it's it's not about the high right then it's about getting rid of the pain you know so um i don't think you really feel the high as much you know but that's the common that's a common story very very common across the united states millions and millions of people who um started out with the doctor's prescription right and um then the doctors want to let them go but the doctors aren't letting them off right they're not you can't just have a patient just stop doing an opiate it's just you know, physically impossible if you're, you know, on a heavy opiate, especially at, so there's many documentaries out there now that can touch on these, this, um, in a lot more detail than I ever could, but, um, the pharmaceutical companies were pushing these pills in the nineties and pushing them on these doctors. And there was, it was pretty much impossible for these doctors to not like give into it. Right. Because of the money that was being thrown at them. It's just like the lobbying in our government. Like it was the same type of thing that was happening to these doctors and uh, the patients were the victims because patients were able to get whatever they wanted um, across the country uh, for a very long time. And then, uh, yeah, people started dying a lot from it and use, you know, abusing it, their prescription, because if you abuse your prescription, you could die because it's a serious drug. But if you were to take your prescription as doctor recommended, then you had a less, you were less likely to just die from it. But addicts don't look at don't work that way right we abuse drugs so if it says do not snort on the on the bottle we're gonna snort it (laughs) and um that's what people started doing and it uh, was killing people all over the country um and then they've you know slowed it down now where it's not as many pills on the street so now it's heroin and fentanyl and it's just so crazy. You know, I have old heroin addict friends that are like, man, I, like I, I wouldn't even want to try to do heroin again anyway. If I, I couldn't if I wanted to because I'm too scared it's going to be fentanyl, you know, and that's ridiculous to hear a heroin addict talking about how heroin isn't that bad. 
<laughs> compared to okay. you know fentanyl um because it's just people sad. are selling people are selling heroin and spiking it with fentanyl oh yeah oh yeah the the uh cartels and well you know people are doing that with multiple types of drugs not just uh heroin they're putting it in xanax and they're putting it in uh, vicodin and they're putting it in all types of things cocaine they're putting it in just about anything because it's so powerful and cheap and it gets you hooked so the more they can get you hooked the more you're gonna buy so the situation is in the opioid crisis in america it's sort of it's changed but it doesn't sound like it's getting any better I really don't know. How, I don't know. I, I think that it's not nearly as bad as it was as far as um, the amount of people that are taking um, pharmaceutical opiates on a daily basis. Um, it's much harder to get. It's much harder to find um, on the streets. I I don't know that as a personal thing. I just see that from like, you know what goes on around me um maybe it is maybe it is easier for a lot of people and i don't know about it <laughs> but it mm-hmm. seems to be the way that things are now is um is heroin is back and fentanyl is is in you know and so the amount of people i would say has gone down but the effect it's having on our society is not going away at all it's getting worse more people are dying from fentanyl than ever had died from regular opiates, even Oxycontin. Um, this fentanyl stuff is is a killer. You guys asked about my personal um, experience in getting off of opiates. Yeah. I think for me, I actually like over the years have started to see that I, I'm actually kind of a special case in this and that I use methadone clinics to get off of it. And it worked for me. It doesn't work for a lot of people. The methadone clinics have a bad name in America as like trying to keep people on and telling people, well, this is a lifetime thing you're going to have to deal with. So you're always going to have to take this methadone, you know, or another one is Suboxone. They try to say, you're going to have to take this for the rest of your life, you know? And, and, um, I just couldn't like, I couldn't accept that. So they actually gave me the option to um, taper down, which was uh, like what they called a blind taper where, because you go in the methadone clinic in the morning and your methadone is put into a cup of uh, juice and you just drink it. You don't know how much is in there, but they tell you usually, but when you ask for the blind taper, then you don't know how much is in there and they're tapering you down to where one day you won't be taking any and you'll just be drinking juice. And I thought that was a great idea for me. And I asked them to start it. And one day I went in and I drank my juice and they said, you haven't had opiates in 10 days, I think it was. And I was just ecstatic, like, great, it's over, you know, I'm off. I don't have to come to this place every day again. But the reality is that the cravings don't go away. And an addict is an addict. and you're always going to find something to replace it. You know, um, it's just kind of human behavior, I think, uh, for addicts, um, or 
a lot of people with other things they're addicted to, you know, but substance abuse is my thing. And so I found Kratom to um, alleviate my cravings for the, the opiate high. And I wish I had found out about it a long time before I ever did. Um, but it's been suppressed for hundreds of years for being the kind of miracle drug that it is. And in my view, I'm, a, I'm an advocate for Kratom because um, it gives people their lives back. It's very cheap. You don't get so high on it to where you're going to die. You don't get so high on, you know, some, some accidents have happened, of course, with it. Uh, it's a drug that uh, impairs you in, at certain levels. But um, if used in a somewhat responsible way, and we're talking about addicts here still, I definitely know people who abuse it and I have definitely probably taken, you know, too much in certain days than I should. But the worst thing that's going to happen to you is, you know, you're not going to die from Kratom. No one's ever died from Kratom. They may have died from driving while they were high on Kratom, you know, and crashed and died from the car wreck. But um, as far as I know, there's been no, and I've, I've looked into it pretty well. I've watched a lot of documentaries of, pretty well versed in kratom <laughs> sorry just for those listening kratom is it's derived from a plant originally if i'm it's a tree yeah and it is the tree legal is native it's mm -hmm. what it's legal it's currently legal as well it, it's legal in some places it's illegal in a lot of places there are states okay. in the united states where it's illegal mm -hmm. um but there's also countries where it's native to that it's illegal. It's native mm -hmm. to the Indonesia. So Bali, Thailand, you know, the different strains of Kratom come from the different islands. So that's how I know it. It's like Hula Kapua, Bali, uh, Thai. Um, yeah, those are the... Those are some of the most popular, Mengda, and uh, those are some of the most popular islands that they come from. But as we know, there's, I think, hundreds of islands out there. <laughs> yeah. Okay, but, and it's from uh, a tree. Yeah, it's a tree. And all you have to do is pull it off the tree, dry it, and then, or you could pull it straight off the tree and chew it. You don't have to process it. Um, the, like, the natives of that area, they chew it daily. The workers, mostly like the uh, labor workers, you know, farm workers, they use Kratom daily. They chew mm -hmm. it and chew it and chew it. And that's how they use it. Americans prefer to be powderized, dried and powderized, and then mix it in with a drink, like a tea, and um, drink it that way. There are Kratom bars across the United States like Kaba and Kratom, where you can go sip Kratom at a bar. Um, but yeah, Kratom, Kratom has been, there's been a lot of pressure on Kratom for a long time. It, uh, during the uh, opiate or the uh, opium days, back in the Chinese opium days, uh, they started to see that Kratom was helping people get off of opium 
And so they made it, Kratom, illegal all through Indonesia and all throughout the land, really, um, because of that, because it was starting to put a dent in the profits of the opium. So it's been victim. It's been a victim of the of the opiate war for a long time. Um, it is right now. A couple of years ago, um, some senators put up a law or a bill, proposed a bill, to have kratom banned in the United States nationally. And there was so much backlash from the public and even um, U.S. senators and representatives that. Um, of people, you know, and their testimonies of how Kratom has helped them. And there was so much of that, that they, they pulled the bill, you know, but now we're seeing that they're going a different route. And this is the pharmaceutical companies doing, you know, pushing this lobbying for this because Kratom is eating into their profits. They're going through the who right now, the world health, World Health Organization, they're going through them to ban it worldwide. It's on a list of 10 substances that is um, going to be voted for. And I'm not sure how that works, but uh, I think each country has a vote or something, um, but they're gonna vote for it soon, within the next year or two, I hear, uh, to, to ban Kratom worldwide. I would just like to go back a bit um, and and ask that's yeah really admirable and that you were able to like the way you described it um, this the, with the tapering down with them in the methadone clinics that it made it sound yeah. quite easy which it, obviously it's you know like you said some people are there for life that yeah. it, it's incredibly difficult yeah. for people most people to to get off so yeah. i was just wondering like mentally emotionally what the difference is between somebody who well like yourself you're able to taper down with it um yeah. and then somebody that is is on there doing it for life and, and can't seem and can't get off it what what the difference is i do take kratom daily so i'm you know some people would say that i'm not off of it right uh i do personally feel like i am off of it off of the opiate addiction um op kratom is not an opiate it hits the same receptors but it's not an opiate um i think that for me it comes to personal accountability in my children and not wanting to let something control me anymore uh, I can't stand it when I get addicted to something too long. You know, I know in the midst of an addiction, I've been an I'm an alcoholic. I've been a addicted to many drugs throughout the years, and in the midst of it, I always know that it's not I'm not doing the right thing. So there's this little you know voice in my head that tells me you know you need to stop. You need to. You, this isn't good for you. And I just think that some people don't have that um, as much as others. Um, and then also just uh, accepting that I am responsible for my choices and I'm the only one who can actually quit the drug for myself. I can't put that pressure on anyone else. I can't expect anyone else to do that for me. And 
thankfully I haven't had to waste a lot of money on rehabs and stuff because I have that, <laughs> but some people do need rehabs and, you know, um, I'm not knocking that at all, but I think it's, it's personal accountability and, um, self-control, uh, ultimately that will get you out of an addiction. So there wasn't, I mean, with the opioids in this time or the, the, the situation that you're describing going to the clinic, was there a moment, what was it that made you decide to quit? Or was there like a one moment or was it just like a well, I, slowly builds up and eventually you, yeah, you just, you decide right, on it. Right. Well, going into it, I think ultimately going into it, it's, I was, I knew that there was going to be an end date to it. Um, it wasn't something I was prepared to do or wanted to do for the rest of my life whatsoever. Um, it's not a fun thing to have to do, you know, show up at five 30 every morning to get your dose and, you know, be around all these people with all these problems and these things. And, and, um, just wasn't something I wanted to do for very long. So sure, that was sure. a big part of it. Done. <laughs> but it's, I was just going to say, it's an amazing thing and, a um, a really, um, strong choice and it takes a lot of inner strength to um get off this stuff I can imagine and then from um the times that we've met as well I see you like personally working a lot on yourself um and I assume I don't know whether you've always done that um throughout addictions as well or if that's a newfound thing but sort of the personal development side of things and um the health side of things um I see you're super interested in the foods you eat and nutrients you take and all sorts and um how you look after yourself now and I is that has that always been present or is that a newfound thing (laughs) Yes, that has always been present. Um, it's it's an evolution, though, you know, I believe for everybody, there's a balance, and it ebbs and flows. You know, I don't want to die. I want to live long. I want to be a grandfather one day so that, you know, I want to take care of myself. So I think of that a lot. And, um, you know, finding the right balance for me is, is key and being in tune with my body and listening to my body um, is key, but I don't always, you know, I'm not always on top of it, you know, Um, I slip, but I feel like I have a good balance going now, right now, I'm feeling pretty good. Um, So you've, you've mentioned your kids a few times, you've got um, one of eight and 10, is that? Yeah, my son is eight and my daughter's 10. Okay. And I, yeah, I'd be interested to hear how becoming a dad changed your, yeah, or maybe not, or just how, how becoming a dad changed your life. Yeah. Yeah. So (laughs) I kind of joke that it was like a biological clock was ticking for me when I turned 30 and I was with my partner and I was like, I just felt the need to have children. (laughs) you know um it was it was time for me um not as like to rescue me but to give me something else to to um to live for besides myself because I obviously wasn't doing very well at that 
Um, and that sounds horrible thinking to bring somebody else into that world. But for some reason I knew that, or I knew that it would be a good thing for me. Um, my children mean so much to me and um, raising them the best that I know how is very important to me. And uh, they, they definitely, having children definitely helped me with the whole opiate uh, crisis I went through and also um, later on alcohol stuff that I went through. Um, I went two and a half years without alcohol. And actually that's, that was a really like pivotal point in my life when I quit drinking for two and a half years. I really got to see myself, you know, like who I am without anything and realized that I was always like, I didn't know, I didn't think I liked who I was. And I was always very insecure and socially uh, awkward and um, probably didn't come off like that to people because of substances, you know, but inside that's how I felt. So when I got sober, I was able to really, I did some therapy and was thankfully able to find a, an amazing therapist that helped me for nine months just kind of work through all of that and talk it out like we're talking now um and and start to really like love who I am you know and appreciate myself um and what I've done and the accomplishment at the time of not drinking and and just you know being aware of 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 that I have been drinking again I drink very low alcohol, um, kombuchas and ciders, and I don't drink to get drunk. That's where I am now. I hope it doesn't progress further in, at all, but uh, I, I do partake again. Um, I don't see any reason for me to get to where I was before, but I know that it could happen. Um, I was drinking like up to definitely 12 to like maybe 18 high alcohol IPA beers a day, you know, when I had to stop drinking the first time. You once said to me that um, with your children, that was uh, the, or well, I can't remember the exact word that you used, but one of the main sources of purpose when you had your children. Um, yeah, they gave you a, a different type or a new new purpose. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, and then, yeah. Well, no, that was that was my <laughs> only question. I think <laughs> I think it was coming back to um, your children, and yeah, I guess that was ten years ago. And then, how has how has your life changed in in those ten years since since having them? Oh wow! Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I've grown up. You know, I was I was still a child at thirty. <laughs> yeah. um, still a child now, probably. <laughs> but um, no, not really. Uh, I feel like I definitely gained a lot of responsibility, gained a lot of um, stable, stabled my stabilized my life. You know, 
um, being stable is very important to me now. Whereas when, before I had children, it was kind of just like, whatever, you know, this is, you know, I was able, to, I did a lot of traveling in my twenties, you know, across the country and living, you know, in a car and going concert to concert, festival to festival, and just kind of had this free spirit, like about me. Whereas if my children really grounded me into like becoming a father and being responsible for them and having to keep up a household and just trying to get better and better at that, you know, um, as, as I can, I am definitely an evolving person and am always open to um, changing and be better. And they have helped me with that for sure. I found it so um yeah, interesting when you said that you were seeking therapy and you learned there was a you learned to like yourself. Mm -hmm. I just wondered if if you had any tips or exercises or if there's anything if, basically a place to start for anyone that is in that space where they're just not really sure they just they just don't like themselves i would say that if you're feeling like you don't like yourself and you're abusing any substances that maybe um stopping the that substance for a while and um getting therapy would would probably help that help you get to to a point where you can see your you know hopefully it's hard to find a good therapist but i, I really think that most people can benefit from therapy even if they're not an addict or if they don't like themselves if everything is seems to be perfect in the world you know I think therapy is great yeah there's so many I mean I've talked to a few people that have such aversions to it um I don't mm -hmm. know if it's um uh I don't know why why that would be, but maybe something in them which prevents them from right. opening up to a stranger or Sounds thinking like that they need they therapy might about that. Pardon? <laughs> Sounds like I'm they may need therapy for that. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but it's it's interesting that um, it helped you come to so many realizations as well. I feel like I've lucked out tremendously with my therapist. I tried to uh, see another therapist last summer during the COVID stuff when it was really bad and um, just felt like I needed to talk to somebody again. And he just didn't, we didn't work. He didn't jive with me. He didn't, um, my, the therapist that I had so much work and breakthrough with, um, she allowed me to speak most of the time. And she was able to like direct me and ask questions that would spark, you know, a certain thought or um, was was really intuitive with me on on that. Whereas in this guy, it was more of like, let me speak for a minute, and then he wanted to tell me all about how who I was and why I was that, which isn't really that's. I don't know. I'm not really into that. Um, I feel like I'm pretty in tune with who I am and why I am the way I am. And I just needed someone to talk to, <laughs> you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
And finding the right therapist is really hard. I've, I've noticed for a lot of people around me that they end up getting these therapists that are really do often can do dam more damage than good, you know? Um, so I can see the, the, the resistance to it. Um, but seeing as that I had such a great experience with mine, I'm always going to be an advocate for therapy because there's hopefully someone out there that you can find that will be a good fit for you. Mm -hmm. was would you say it was just luck that you found someone you know yeah (laughs) most definitely and she would say I don't know where you came from (laughs) and I'm like well you know same to you you know (laughs) like so yeah definitely yeah I think um yeah I mean maybe it was written in the stars for me you know I don't know (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> uh it's yeah she was amazing i definitely lucked out your story so far it's just it sounds it's so fascinating and so uh like life affirming as well and that you've you've gone through ups and downs and the light and dark and um you sort of for me demonstrate as well that like it's life you know there are ups and downs and there's life and dark and you like the the place that you're in now looking back and how far you've come and um that you've accepted or well from what it sounds like sort of accepted and worked through all that the dark points and and the good points and they all they all make you who you are um and yeah. that that journey is a really fascinating one and it's one that takes a lot of uh, courage and self-inquiry as well and um it's it's amazing to to do all the things that you've done well i appreciate that yeah i appreciate that a lot i think that we're always going to be facing the ups and downs and the light and the dark as you say in our lives and um we never really the work is never done <laughs> just keeps going <laughs> but that's yeah. maybe that's part of life isn't it We're, it's part of the, ju- the journey yeah right before we move on to the quick fire questions was there anything else that you wanted to talk about or say that we or if there's any questions that um we could have asked but didn't it was thank you for having me glad that you guys are doing this i haven't listened to any of your podcasts i don't know how many but i'm looking forward to listening to corn flowers because i think he's an amazing human and i'm sure you guys had a wonderful time with him (laughs) (laughs) um but yeah i i think we touched on most of what i thought we would talk about i would say that i am in a new relationship with a woman right now who honestly i'd get kind of given up hope on finding somebody quite like her um and i'm super super happy that we're both super happy and feel the same way about each other that uh we've found each other at this point in our lives and um to maybe just never give up hope and sometimes when you just surrender to the flow Haley, Haley, uh, <laughs> that it'll come to you, maybe, you know, um, when you least expect it and to never lose hope. Amazing. Yeah, those are good, good words to hear. Um, okay, well, we'll move to the quick fire questions. 
Um, okay. The first one is, in one word, what does the phrase finding your purpose mean to you? Genuinity. What is the one book that you would love to share with as many people as possible? The Four Agreements by Don Miguel Ruiz. That's a great book. How would you like to be remembered? As a good person and a good father and a good friend. If you had to give someone one piece of advice or quote about finding your purpose, what would this be? Never lose hope. Amazing. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much, Danny. That was really good. Oh, um, awesome to chat to you. Thank you, Danny. That was, yeah, that was really, really inspiring. And yeah, I appreciate you coming on and sharing everything. Oh, thank you, Claire. I appreciate that. Yeah, I appreciate you guys for what you're doing. It's amazing. Well, thank you. I think I'm sure lots of people um, will listen to this and be really uh, touched by your words and maybe your stories will um, help out a lot of people who need to hear it as uh, well. So, I hope so. Yeah, thank yeah you. <laughs> just one person, that would be amazing. Um, thank you guys for doing what you do. Thanks for listening to the Squiggly Lives podcasts with your hosts, Helena and Claire. Head over to our website, squigglylives.com to subscribe and hear more shows. That's all for this episode. See you next time.